Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on Martin Luther King Day with an examination of the history of white resistance from those who Ralph Waldo Emerson described as, quote, fanatics of freedom. They hate tolls, taxes, turnpikes, banks, hierarchies, governors, yea, almost laws. Joining us is Jefferson Cowie, who holds the chair in American history at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of Staying Alive, The 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class, and The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics. His latest book just out is Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. We'll discuss how freedom for white men to enslave blacks and exterminate Native Americans meant freedom to oppress other people, and how liberty in the eyes of those who stormed the capital on January the 6th, now threatens life and the pursuit of happiness for the multicultural majority of Americans, whose freedom Governor Ron DeSantis derides as wokeness. Then we'll assess the possibility that Armenians trapped in the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh could face genocide from Azeris egged on by Turkey's Erdogan, while the Russians, who are supposed to keep open the only bridge in and out of the landlocked enclave, appear indifferent or helpless to fulfill their role as peacekeepers. Joining us is David Phillips, the director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University, and a former senior advisor and foreign affairs expert to the U.S. Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. He chaired the Turkish-Armenian Reconciliation Commission, and the Track 2 program in Turkey and the Caucasus, and his books include Unsilencing the Past, Diplomatic History, the Turkey-Armenian Protocols, and most recently, Frontline Syria, From Democratic Revolution to Proxy War. And he has an article at the National Interest, Could Biden Have Stopped Russia from Invading Ukraine? Then finally, we'll assess the possibility of an arms race in Northeast Asia following Friday's White House meeting between Biden and Japan's Prime Minister Kishida, at which pledges were made to increase defenses to counter China's rise and military threats against Taiwan. Joining us is Ellis Krauss, Professor Emeritus of Japanese Politics and Policymaking at the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. He is a leading expert on Japanese politics and U.S.-Japan relations, and his books include The Rise and Fall of Japan's LDP, Political Party Organizations as Institutions, Beyond Bilateralism, U.S.-Japan Relations in the New Asia-Pacific, and Reluctant Warriors, Germany, Japan, and Their U.S. Alliance Dilemma. And joining us now on this Martin Luther King Day is Jefferson Cowie, who holds a James G. Stallman Chair in American History at Vanderbilt University. He is the author of Staying Alive, the 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class, and The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics. And his latest book just out is Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jefferson Cowie. Good to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And I'm interested, of course, in talking about your book, When Freedom, which is, you know, about where <laughs> a time when freedom meant freedom to oppress other people and the, the link between racism and the loathing of government. But let's start with today, of course, Martin Luther King Day. And in Selma, Alabama, there is a march commemorating MLK along with a call to end gun violence. So given that we witnessed a lot of Confederate flags on January the 6th as the, as the Capitol was stormed by insurrectionists. 
This issue is alive and well in the country, and I've often made the remark that the liberty and freedom that white, heavily armed, angry men in this country proclaim all the time, liberty is now threatening life and the pursuit of happiness in this country. So how dire do you see the situation? Well, I see it as uh, it's pretty dire, uh, but I also see it as, as continuous with the American past. I mean, in this book, I trace it all the way back to Jacksonian America and Indian removal, which was just as exactly said, armed, angry uh, white men who were so angry and so armed that they resisted the man who promised them land and, and the removal of Indians to begin with, Andrew Jackson, because he was moving too slow on Indian removal and they and they fought him. So it it arcs forward from Indian removal through Reconstruction when there were violent coups against black enfranchisement through the New Deal and on into the civil rights era to and then back to our present day, um, where we see a continual call of uh, white freedom as opposed to black political rights. Well, of course, Ronald Reagan made his uh, announcement that he's running for president down in Mississippi uh, in a way that many people thought was sort of provocative. And, of course, Donald Trump came down the escalator and said that Mexicans were rapists and murderers. Mm -hmm. But Donald Trump modeled his presidency, it seems, on Andrew Jackson, did he not? Yeah, well, he hung up Jackson's portrait, you know, uh, right there in the, in, in the Capitol. Uh, so what was he suggesting? Hitler, what was he signaling, do you think? That he was the 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 candidate, the, the leader of the populist white insurgencies of the country, you know, which I think came to fruition on January 6th. But, you know, you mentioned Selma, you mentioned, uh, you know, it's obviously Martin Luther King Day. In a place like Selma, when, what I like to point out is that when those when when the marchers went across the Selma Bridge, um, or tried to go across the bridge and finally did, what they were trying to do in that instance was get out from underneath local political power, right? And that's the history of much of of, of American history. It's is to try to achieve political rights outside of local dominant local systems of of typically white domination that went by the name of freedom. It's my freedom to oppress. It's my freedom to take your vote. It's my freedom to take your land. And but what um, actually the Creek people who originally inhabited that area and African Americans who were brought in to work the land wanted was to be federal citizens. They saw more power in federal citizenship. Um, and so uh, they were trying to trigger the Voting Rights Act uh, by that march across Selma to, to ensure that voting rights would be taken out of the local level, projected onto the national level, um, to get away from those kind of local uh, brands of freedom. And that's what you mentioned, Reagan, in Philadelphia, Mississippi, um, when he went and launched his campaign right at the uh, right near where those uh, civil rights workers were killed during uh, uh, Freedom Summer in Mississippi. And uh, Reagan was promising to return that power. It was, you know, it was a state's rights speech uh, right there. And he's promising to return that sense of freedom to the local level so that uh, local white systems of power could return to domination. And you, 
Your book, Jefferson Cowie, Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power, focuses on Alabama. You know, I began by mentioning the marches today in Selma commemorating Martin Luther King Day. And, of course, obviously George Wallace is a main character. Or <laughs> You cover him, and, you know, he's made that famous uh, speech, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. But he, in, in that same speech, he invoked freedom uh, many more times, 24 times, more than Martin Luther King ever did in his I Have a Dream speech. And, you know, there is this kind of Christian identity out there that was also a part of uh, what we saw on January the 6th among the Trump flags and the Confederate flags. They were also symbols of Christianity, of whiteness and freedom, etc. So let's talk about that kind of coalition, if you will. How much is it driven, do you think, by this distorted idea of freedom or liberty, I guess well, is the word I mean, that's used. Right. Freedom, liberty, um, you know, in the vernacular, I think they're fairly interchangeable, even though there are philosophical differences between the two. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's distorted, but it's also so real as to be part and parcel of 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 the American tradition. Um, it's, it, by the time I was done with the book, I looked back and I said, oh, the Freedom Caucus, the most conservative wing of the Republican Party in the House, uh, now makes sense, right? <laughs> right? It's not like just manipulating a popular word in the American creed for political purposes. This is actually a core value of American political tradition, this sort of Right. White freedom to dominate. Um, and it, it, it's very virulent. It's very strong. It, it's recurring. Um, and uh, we are seeing uh, an outburst of it in the last five years uh, that has arcs back through history. And I want to go back to something you mentioned, you know, since it's King Day. Wallace and King, so the county I study in this book, um, uh, gave birth to George Wallace the segregationist governor from Alabama. And as you say, he, he saw himself as a freedom fighter and, and, and that more even than he saw himself as a segregationist. And I think that presents a certain kind of problem for how we imagine, uh, you know, politics in this country. If this is a serious idea of freedom, not just something to be scoffed at, but it's actually a core aspect of American life, then, then this is, freedom becomes a very complicated question. Um, freedom from federal tyranny was what Wallace was about. And that means he can now make a coalition, not just with sort of the snarling racists who he's going to get anyway, but anti-tax people, anti-regulation people, um, people who, you know, uh, don't want uh, the government interfering in employment, people who don't want the government interfering in housing, also, you know, all sorts of things. And Q- QAnon that's people? Much more rich. And QAnon people, yeah. Apparently. Yeah, actually, huh. uh, Wallace, Wallace said that uh, his his American Independence Party was uh, the Squirrel Party because it was full of all nuts and, and kooks. So um, uh, is where all the squirrels were kept. All the squirrels kept their nuts. Um, so, yeah, that, that too is kind of an old theme, the sort of kind of paranoid mm-hmm. tradition in American politics. But he did very well in uh, 1972 when he ran as a Democrat, did he not? He won some states. Yes, yes, yes he did. And, and he made significant incursions into, he won Michigan, 
uh, you know, when he got, he was uh, doing well when he got shot in, in Maryland. Uh, he was a, he was a uh, very powerful political figure uh, in the 72 campaign. It was a weak, weak candidate. It was most of the energy was around Humphrey Wallace and, and um, McGovern. Uh, but yeah, he was doing really well. And he knew uh, that his message uh, the sort of anti-status brand of sort of racialized anti-status freedom w- was popular around the country. And, and he had found that out in previous runs and, and knew he could build a political coalition around this. Well, he sort of created a version of radicalized freedom, did he not, where racism and plus freedom, where they coexist. And, and uh, it's lived on, as you pointed out, in the Freedom Caucus, which is the most radical, reactionary, and oppressive part of the new House of Representatives. And by the way, Donald Trump, who we started out mentioning how he also uh, started out, as I mentioned, with racist comments about Latinos. But before he ran, he laid the groundwork for his presidential run by starting the Bertha Conspiracy, which was also aided and abetted by the Russians. But still, you can see the fingerprints of racism and this distorted notion of freedom all over Donald Trump's new GOP. Yeah, and but I, I want to again reiterate, it, you know, this is the latest incarnation of a long history. I, mm-hmm. I delineate, for instance, uh, when after the Civil War, when federal troops were in uh, the Deep South protecting black civil rights, um, there's a massive backlash against the federal, federal powers who, who were threatening white freedom to control the democratic process. And eventually, in my case, in this county I'm studying, they just opened fire on election day and slaughtered, um, they, well, they probably shot over 80 people uh, right at the voting booths in, in the main town in this county, Barber County, that I'm studying. So this kind of, this is my dominion. Uh, kind of attitude. This is this is my place, not yours. Runs run very very deep in American political history. It's it's hardly new, but that doesn't that doesn't make you know, which makes it kind of more challenging, I think, than than just oh, look at the contemporary aberration of Donald Trump. Well, but the contemporary aberration of Donald Trump does feel like the new Jim Crow, where you take you know massive steps backwards. And as I say, he started out by encouraging the Bertha conspiracy, which allowed people to be racist again, and they came out from under a rock. And that's exactly what the other guy that's running for president, or he hasn't announced yet, but he surely will, and that's Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Mm -hmm. His whole message, his whole campaign is based on coded racism, where he derives wokeness and... Again, he's against the whole multicultural reality of America. He wants to take the freedom away from Latinos, blacks, gays, etc., liberals, you name it. That's right. That's right. And this is this is an old war. Uh, whose country is this, right? And so, and this has, that's why this has to be taken so very seriously. And in the case of DeSantis, you know, I think he he has values similar to Trump's, except he's a lot smarter. Um, and therefore, and a lot less kind of buffoonish in his presentation, and therefore, we need to be taking him all the more seriously. 
Um, we didn't take Trump seriously enough, and I don't. I think we uh, don't take DeSantis seriously at our peril because this is deep. This is deep stuff. This isn't just a passing fad. This is this is old and deep and powerful, and almost an inescapable dimension of American history. And this is the contest of our time. Are we a multicultural republic, or, or, or are we a is this a freedom for, for for white people? So I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think, <laughs> I think it's an important question to ask. But just in the last couple of minutes, let's talk about what could possibly end this kind of sickness in our body politic. Some people think that the younger generations are post-racial, post-sexual, tolerant of different sexual orientation and tolerant of different races. Does that give you hope? I mean, you teach at a university in the South, so is that a <laughs> yeah, possibility? Yeah, I, I do. I do. Yeah, you know, I, I, young people right now, they're very smart. They're, they're engaged, but not ideological. They have this sort of pragmatism to them that, that I find sort of uh, refreshing, not prag- pragmatic in a sellout way, but in a sort of calculated way. And so that's, that's great. But you know what? I, my basic takeaway from from my book is maybe we should talk less about freedom and more about the institutions of democracy so that requires you know freedom is something you can beat your breast and yell about and wave confederate flags as you're storming the capital but if you're talking about democracy you're talking about institutions and laws and 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 the actual functioning of how how something's going to work. And so I would like to kind of move our political rhetoric away from the sort of belligerent white kind of freedom that we've seen toward a a conversation more about how democracy works and what it takes to make a functioning democracy. And I think that would be a more fruitful approach for the future. But, we saw before our eyes an attack on democracy itself, on the very citadel of democracy, the U.S. Capitol, which they right. almost succeeded. In the name succeeded. of freedom. <laughs> In the name of freedom, they almost succeeded. And there's a move underway, particularly led by Kevin McCarthy, the new head of the House, to expunge all of that, not only to expunge the impeachments of Donald Trump, but to expunge the reality, to rewrite history, to say that those people right. that desecrated and defecated in the Capitol itself and wanted to kill the vice president and the speaker, they're heroes. They're, they're martyrs, for God's sake. This is a movement underway. So surely there has to be a counter-movement. As an historian, um, you, you're watching history being rewritten before your eyes, are you not, Jefferson? Uh, well, yes and no. Like th- This is kind of what I'm trying to drive home, is that um, it is shocking. It is... You know, abhorrent to me. It is. It is an attempt to write a very specific version of history, but it's not new, right? I mean, this is. These battle lines have been there. They were there during the New Deal. They were there during Reconstruction. They were there during Indian removal. They were there during the women's rights movement. They were, you know, uh, and and the struggle continues to try to uh, uh, expand notions of freedom, to expand notions of democracy, and to and to build the institutions that will protect them from for all people. Well, Jefferson Cowie, I thank you very much for joining us here today on this Martin Luther King Day.
Thanks for having me in. Happy Martin Luther King Day to you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jefferson Cowie, who is the chair of American history at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of Staying Alive, The 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class, and The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics. And his latest book just out is Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the possibility that Armenians trapped in the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh could face genocide from Azeris, while Russian peacekeepers appear to be either helpless or indifferent. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Phillips, the Director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University, and a former Senior Advisor and Foreign Affairs Expert to the U.S. Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama. He chaired the Turkish-Armenian Reconciliation Commission and the Track 2 Program in Turkey and the Caucasus, and his books include Unsilencing the Past, Diplomatic History, the Turkey-Armenian Protocols, and most recently, Frontline Syria, From Democratic Revolution to Proxy War. And he has an article at the National Interest, Could Biden Have Stopped Russia from Invading Ukraine? Welcome to Background Briefing, David Phillips. Ian, thank you. Thanks for joining us, David. And there is, I don't know, let me ask you, is there a possibility uh, that you could have genocide of Armenians trapped inside this enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. There's certainly the Russian peacekeepers who are supposed to open the only bridge in and out of this landlocked enclave appear either indifferent or helpless. So Azerbaijan is pursuing an agenda to commit a second Armenian genocide. Uh, It's taking Armenians in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. It's isolating them. It's cutting them off from Internet access. It's making the Lachin Corridor, which connects Artsakh to Armenia, impassable. So really what's going on here is a systematic effort to cleanse or exterminate Armenians that are living in Azerbaijan. And this demonstration that's blocked the bridge, uh, where the Russian peacekeepers seem to be either helpless or indifferent, the demonstration is led by eco-protesters. So is that some sort of cynical move on the part of the Azerbaijanis? I mean, what's the ecological component to this? Um, it's cynicism uh, at its worst. The idea that eco-protesters would somehow be uh, responsible for what's going on is a complete farce. Uh, what's really happening is that Azerbaijan is manipulating events to put the squeeze on ethnic Armenians 
Russia has a commitment to keep the Lachin Corridor in operation. It's walked away from that commitment, and the Armenians in Artsakh are at risk of perishing, being killed, or another offensive from Azerbaijan, which seems determined to eliminate ethnic Armenians from its territory. And we're talking about 120,000 people, right, trapped in Nagorno-Karabakh. That's right, although there are more ethnic Armenians in other parts of Azerbaijan, but a little more than 100,000 Armenians are living in Artsakh, which is the Armenian name and the name that I prefer to use. So what kind of external forces can intervene here? Because the Russians made a deal, and I guess the UN and the US allowed Russia to be the peacekeeper, and they're clearly not fulfilling their obligations. Well, there is a question of the mandate that exists for the Russian force, whether they have authorization uh, to use military assets to enforce the peacekeeping mission. Uh, there's some doubt about that. Now, the broader question has to do with international pressure. And the fact of the matter is that Azerbaijan is an energy supplier. It's able to produce natural gas and send it to Western allies. And it's cynically manipulating its energy resources in order to deflect attention and criticism from the West. Uh, this is just another example of how the war in Ukraine has completely taken over uh, Biden's foreign policy. The U.S. turns a blind eye to what's going on in Artsakh and uh, the pressures that Armenians are facing simply because we're cutting energy deals with Baku, whose energy supply we think we need in order to relieve the pressure uh, resulting from Russia's war of aggression. But in terms of the political leadership in the enclave, it's led by a guy called Ruben Vadanian, who's a close crony of Putin's. He sort of just took over with his money. He's a billionaire. Certainly wasn't elected. And his promise is because he's got good ties to the Kremlin, because he helped Putin launder a bunch of money, that he could somehow deal with the Russians. Well, he, he's proving to be ineffectual, isn't he? I mean, the prime minister of the country is not very happy with him, is he? So Russia made a, made a treaty commitment to keep the Lachin Corridor open. It has failed to fulfill its obligation. Without the Lachin Corridor, Armenians have no internet, they have no food or fuel or medical supplies. The shelves in Stepanakert, which is the capital of Artsakh, are bare. So I don't think the blame belongs exclusively with Ruben Vardanian. The blame belongs with Ilham Aliyev and his cohorts in Russia who are perpetrating these crimes against Armenians. And what role is Erdogan playing, the Turkish dictator? Oh, my. Erdogan was behind the start of the second Nagorno-Karabakh war. Uh, Turkey provided um, Bayraktar two drones. Uh, Turkey's military hardware um, is all over the place. It used F-16s in the fight in October of 2022. So once again, Turkey is cynically trying to play both sides when, in fact, Turkey's intentions are clear. Turkey and Azerbaijan have decided to team up. 
to commit a second Armenian genocide. Erdogan is very cleverly positioning himself as a peacemaker when, in fact, he is the warmonger. And what's happening with the other Azerbaijani enclave that borders on Turkey and Iran that's on the other side of Armenia? Uh, it's been a kind of weird Stalinist one-man state, like a North Korea. But the dictator, Aliyev, just fired the long-standing crook that running that place. Are they likely, to, and since it borders on Turkey, are they likely to cause trouble there as well to the Armenians? Of course they are. Of course, well, of course, the uh, you know, the Azeris and the ethnic Turks will cause trouble there. What needs to happen is there needs to be um, an agreement that freedom of movement uh, will be maintained for all parties, that the international community will guarantee access to Artsakh through the Lachin Corridor, uh, and that there will be a general demilitarization of the region so that we can get back to the job of peace building, restoring some order and some hope for the people that are living there. So who's, who's going to do that? Is it what's happening at the UN? Nothing, no one's going to do that. The U.S. is the only country that has the capacity to. The Minsk Group, which includes the U.S., Russia, and France, have a, a diplomatic mandate to be involved. But with the war in Ukraine um, and efforts to pu push back Russia's aggression, taking center stage, there's really no country that's prepared to use its political capital or its security assets to protect Armenia. We've seen this before. It's another tragic event. Something needs to happen, and the U.S. needs to lead. And if there is an, an extermination of, in the enclave, another genocide, and the Armenians go to war again with the Azeris, Russian is the main military ally of Armenia, isn't it? Uh, so, so Russia has positioned itself as a weapons supplier to both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a cynical double game. Russia can't be trusted as a peacekeeper because it stands to benefit from violent conflict. Turkey, too, is playing this double game, trying to position itself as a mediator, when in fact, Turkey is aggressively stoking the fires of violent conflict. And the religious, the but the idea that the Armenians are Orthodox Christians, that doesn't have sway in the Kremlin? Uh, it has limited sway in the Kremlin. Russia's interested in its geostrategic interests, not in culture and religion. So since you studied this region and you've been actively involved with the Turkish-Armenian Reconciliation Commission and the Track 2 program in Turkey and the Caucasus, David, what's your sense? I mean, you sound like you're alarmed, and I'm wondering if something terrible could happen at any moment here. Yeah, I am alarmed. I'm alarmed about the prospect of a second Armenian genocide with Turkey supporting Azerbaijan uh, to commit crimes against humanity, uh, with Russia turning a blind eye and abrogating its armistice obligations. Right now, the international community is asleep at the switch. Asleep at the, switch. the U.S. and other countries need to step up, the U.S. and France in particular, and make a point that Armenians will be protected, that aggression by Azerbaijan and the supply of deadly weapons to Azerbaijan 
by Turkey won't be tolerated. If we don't stand up and be counted, then more murders and killings will occur. And we'll be having another conversation about the second Armenian genocide instead of ways of preventing it. So what about the Armenian diaspora? Does that have any political clout? Oh, of course it does. Senator Menendez uh, is very close with the Armenian diaspora in the United States. Uh, he's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's issued some very strong statements. The Congress is animated, Senator Chris Van Hollen uh, and others. Um, but this is ultimately an executive branch decision, and it's important for Biden and Blinken to make it very clear publicly that the U.S. won't tolerate continued aggression, and it will intervene diplomatically to prevent that from happening. Well, it sounds like Blinken is more on the ball than that. Sullivan at the NSC, who seems to have Biden's ear, has been incredibly cautious all along. What's your bottom line with your recent article, could Biden have stopped Russia from invading Ukraine? Because Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, just made an offer to the UN of a peace deal with Russia, which the Russians completely rejected. And basically, the UN ambassador you know, said that we're fighting fascists and the um, Ukrainians are committing cultural genocide and against Russian speaking and all this crazy propaganda that Putin seems to believe. I mean, he's clearly ready for a spring offensive and no interest in, in a peace deal. He thinks he can beat the Ukrainians a second time around. What's your sense then of what could have been done in terms of your article? Well, we, what we heard today from Russia's ambassador is just more crap from Moscow more disinformation, more political manipulation. Yes, there's more that could have been done to prevent Putin from attacking in the first place by giving Ukraine more sophisticated weapons, more diplomatic support, but that didn't happen. We gave them just enough to survive, but not to win. So now we have to make a decision. Are we gonna stand by Ukraine? Are we gonna oppose Russian aggression? Are we just gonna continue with more theater and more rhetoric and more statements, while victims look on asking for more help. Well, you're talking about Jake Sullivan's agenda, right? I don't think it's Sullivan's agenda. I think it's an agenda of the Biden administration as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, we have now made the decision to give armored personnel carriers, uh, tanks, and more sophisticated surface-to-air defense systems, including a patriot system, to Ukraine, you know, it's time to stop stringing this out. You know, if we want Russia to be defeated, we have to give Ukraine the tools to do the job. We need to work with our friends and allies, like ethnic Armenians in the region, to make sure that other uh, autocrats, like Aliyev and Erdogan, don't commit crimes. The U.S. is the only country that has the clout and the capacity to prevent that from happening. You know, enough uh, talk. It's time for more action. So, in other words, there's no way in the world that the U.S. is going to work with Russia to stop genocide in uh, Armenia. So, is there any chance that the U.S. could also come to the rescue of Armenia as they are coming to the rescue of a Ukraine, albeit too little and too late. 
Yes, the U.S. should come to the rescue of Armenia. That doesn't necessarily mean opening a second security front, but we should make it very clear using diplomacy and an international coalition of like-minded countries that we're not going to sit idly by and watch a second genocide occur. Uh, If Russia is complicit in that, then they need to be called out. The U.S. needs to do more. Uh, Armenians and Americans have a natural friendship and loyalty. We should be expressing that friendship in practical terms and making it clear to Azerbaijan and others that we won't tolerate aggressive action. We won't stand idly by while the Lachin Corridor is closed and the Internet is closed down and food and medical supplies are shut off. The U.S. needs to stand for something. And we can't issue idle statements and not walk the talk. I'm hoping for more from the Biden administration. Well, just in closing then, David Phillips, is there anything uh, our audience can do? We, We do have here in Southern California, of course, we have a big Armenian population. So the congressional delegation from California um, is strongly pro-Armenian. They need to be galvanized. There needs to be more support. Uh, The U.S. needs to rethink its waiver of Section 907 of the Freedom Support Act. And that starts with members of Congress raising their voices, expressing solidarity with Armenians, and the Biden administration responding to that by doing more to prevent a second Armenian genocide, doing more to provide equipment and training to Ukraine so they have the ability to defeat Russia, which they will do if they're given the tools to do the job. Well, David Phillips, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Always good to be with you. Well, thank you, David. And again, I've been speaking with David Phillips, the director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the study of human rights at Columbia University and a former senior advisor and foreign affairs expert to the U.S. Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. He chaired the Turkish-Armenian Reconciliation Commission and the Track 2 program in Turkey and the Caucasus, and his books include Unsilencing the Past, Diplomatic History, the Turkey-Armenian Protocols, and most recently Frontline Syria from Democratic Revolution to Proxy War, and he has an article at the National Interest, Could Biden Have Stopped Russia from Invading Ukraine? We're going to take a station break. We're back with an assessment of the possibility of an arms race in Northeast Asia, following Friday's White House meeting between Biden and Japan's Prime Minister Kishida.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ellis Krauss, who's a professor emeritus of Japanese politics and policymaking at the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. He is a leading expert on Japanese politics and U.S.-Japan relations, and his books include The Rise and Fall of Japan's LDP, Political Party Organizations as Institutions, Beyond Bilateralism, U.S.-Japan Relations in the New Asia-Pacific, and Reluctant Warriors, Germany, Japan, and Their U.S. Alliance Dilemma. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ellis Krauss. Thank you very much. Good to be here, as always. Well, thanks for joining us, Ellis. And on Friday, President... Biden uh, met with Prime Minister Kishida of Japan, and they vowed to work together to essentially reverse Japanese post-World War II pacifism, build up a military alliance. And in general, arms races are not a good idea, but is there any choice here or any way to avoid an arms race with China? Uh, uh, To answer your question first, no, I don't think so. Uh, This is, of course, the dilemma of democratic countries confronted by an authoritarian country determined to knock off the hegemon, which in this case is the U.S. Uh, We saw it, of course, in World War I with Germany and Britain, and we saw it again in World War II um, with uh, Japan, Germany as well. So this is the dilemma. The dilemma is on the one side, as we know, um, excuse me, appeasement doesn't work because we tried that in World War II. And um, of course, uh, also um, when Russia took over Crimea, not much of a response from the West. And we've seen what happens there. So on the one side, appeasement doesn't work. But on the other side, there is, as you noted, a dilemma. And uh, political scientists call and international relations experts call it the security dilemma, which is one side builds, sees the other side as becoming aggressive. And so they, in defense, build up their own military. And then what happens is the first uh, country sees the defensive move by the other as actually being offensive and therefore build their up military too. And this goes Then the second country again sees the first country's military being aggressive and offensive and then builds up theirs and the cycle goes on and on and you have, as you noted, an arms race. And this often results in war. So this is the dilemma. You're darned if you do and darned if you don't. If I could use the word damned, I will. Uh, Because um, this is, there's no good, you know, simple response here. Uh, On the other hand, let me just say I do not like the word pacifism used in relation to Japan um, because I don't think Japan was ever pacifist since the 1950s. It had an armed forces. Um, Japanese public supported those armed forces for the defense of Japan only. And, uh, you know, this is and we have they had an alliance with the U.S., the strongest military power in the world post-war. I think Gandhi and. Uh, would roll over in his grave, calling that pacifism. I prefer to call it anti-militarist. That is, the Japanese government and politics hesitated to build up the military too strongly or to get involved in overseas um, battles that the United States fought, its allies fought, 
um, if they weren't in the interests of Japan. So apparently, though, what's tipped the balance here a little bit, and I want to get your opinion on this, is that China fired these missiles around Taiwan in August, and we know that North Korea has fired a whole bunch of missiles towards Japan. Some of them gone over Japan. We're infuriating the Japanese. But now the Chinese have added to that uh, in August, where they five of these missiles landed not far from Japan or in Japanese waters. So yes. I don't understand why China would be that provocative. But it's the same thing's happening with South Korea, isn't it? That they're building up their military too. So the more that North Korea, for example, builds up its nuclear capabilities, the more that both Japan and South Korea build up their nuclear capabilities, you think that the Chinese would want to kind of moderate the North Korean behavior, but maybe they don't have any leverage. Um, they, they're the only people that have any leverage, but I don't know whether they have the will or they don't have the will or there's no way you can deal with Kim Jong-un. What's your sense on that? Well, first, I think that I'm not sure how much leverage China has over North Korea. We always assume it has, I think, more than it does have. I'm not sure anybody has leverage over North Korea. In many ways, they are a rogue state. And I think Kim Jong-un um, is determined to, uh, from his own paranoid perspective, to make uh, North Korea a nuclear power. Um, and a lot of this is for the domestic um, consumption, of course. But in many ways, I think Japan's um, response to North Korea is both has been both long term since the 1990s, but also I think the government, to some extent, and probably uh, rationally so, uses North Korea fear of, of the Japanese public. Uh, as a stalking horse, as a way to actually build up the military because of the government's fear and long term of the rise of China militarily. And uh, of course, the government is afraid of both and um, has rational reasons for building up the military uh, in response. But I think one of the factors that should be brought into play here is not only the behavior of China and North Korea, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's behavior toward Taiwan. I think the combination of these two has really triggered what is going on in Japan now. Um, the Japanese government and particularly Prime Minister Kishida has linked the two consistently since Russia invaded Ukraine. I think, uh, and the tie-ups and the increasing defense relationships of Japan with Europe um, Britain and Italy and France um, are very much because the Japanese know that if China tries to take Taiwan, as Russia tried to take Ukraine, trying to take Ukraine, that they will be involved. There is no way for Japan to avoid being at war if China invades Taiwan tries to take it over by force, and the U.S. responds accordingly. Um, much of the action will take place from Japanese bases, um, the bases on Japanese territory, and they will get involved. So there is a, a real fear here that Russia changed, as true of all over the world, Russia's invasion changed the nature of the global system and their assumptions uh, that it was stable, 
And now the Japanese see the link to Taiwan very clearly. Well, prior to coming to Washington, of course, Prime Minister Kishida of Japan met with European, British, and Canadian leaders. So this is a broader alliance. I mean, Japan is is a part of the Quad Coalition of the United States, India, and Australia. And how significant is that to your mind, Ellis? Well, I, th- I think it's part of a broader picture. It's not, um, the Quad itself is not a real alliance, and India has consistently since joining, uh, and also in terms of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has tried to play both ends against the middle. They do a lot of trade with Russia, and a lot of their military is supplied by Russia. So um, they're not going to go too far against Russia or China uh, to some extent. So I think it's, it's not a real military alliance. It's designed to, as a warning to China, again, one more political deterrence to China that um, you can't act with impunity. But I think the relationships with European countries and the, um, are much more significant. Uh, Japan just signed an agreement with Britain. <clears throat> it's a reciprocal agreement that will allow each of the countries to send troops and train uh, on each other's soil. That's unprecedented. Germany, I'm sorry, Britain and uh, Italy and Japan have now signed an agreement to build Japan's and Europe's next generation fighter plane, not the U.S. It was these two European countries. So Japan, in the broader picture, is expanding its options on defense from purely bilateral with the U.S., to a broader coalition of democratic countries in order to have more options when it comes to military equipment and a military response. The real goal of this, however, is again, a warning to China, don't push us too far, don't get too aggressive, because this is a broad coalition of countries who might come to Japan's aid in the event in the event that Japan is attacked. Um, it, it's what Chris Hughes, a political scientist at the University of Warwick in England, has called bilateralism plus. It hasn't re- uh, substituted for the U.S. alliance, but it's a supplement to it. And the whole goal is to strengthen the defensive ties for, for Japan. Japan's probably not going to war Um, if uh, Italy is attacked, for example, but they do hope that um, countries like Britain and Italy and the EU will come to Japan's aid if Japan is threatened. So again, it's it's aimed at deterrence, but it is a broader form of deterrence than just the U.S.-Japan alliance. Well, last Wednesday, the president of South Korea said that the South Koreans could develop nuclear weapons on their own, and they could also ask the U.S. to deploy their nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula if the North Korean nuclear threat grows. So, I mean, it's not just Japan. Obviously, Japan is not a nuclear power, but my understanding is that basically they've got so much plutonium that they could quickly make nuclear weapons. There's no no indication that they're interested in getting crossing that threshold. But 
How do you see that working out? As South Korea talks about getting nuclear weapons and they always react to Japan because of the the history between the two countries from the Japanese occupation of the Korean Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Anything that any increase in Japanese militarism seems to upset the South Koreans. So are they going to work together, do you think, now that they seem to have a common sense of a threat from uh, both North Korea and China? Well, the United States would certainly love and has been pushing both countries to get over their historical memories issues, uh, which, of course, are horrendous uh, for the Japanese occupation of Korea for 35 years. But um, it's always overdone in Korea. I think uh, the previous administration of uh, Mr. Moon was much softer toward North Korea in terms of rapprochement and uh, much more negative toward Japan. Um, The current administration, which just came to power last year, Mr. Yun, is um, much more determined to settle some of the historical memories that have been obstacles to a good relationship with Japan, because, again, the common threat of China, I think. He's also a conservative, um, and and he is much stronger on defense, given those statements about nuclear weapons, which are obviously designed to warn North Korea, don't go too far. Um, And so I think that there is a warming of relations in the making between Japan and South Korea. But I don't think that, A, Japan will ever have boots on the ground in South Korea again. I used to tell my students, if you want to see the unification of the Korean Peninsula, put Japanese boots on the ground in South Korea. Uh, It's not going to happen. However, there will be increasing defense cooperation between the two allies. Um, shall we say, with the go-between being the United States, pushing both countries to build up their defense in response to China and North Korea. Um, And I think that will be partially successful if the current administration stays in power for long. Um, Japan, I don't think, will have nuclear weapons in the foreseeable future. In fact, interestingly enough, one of the reasons for Prime Minister Kishida's trip to Europe and the U.S. is actually to do some um, preliminary negotiations for the G7 summit that's coming up, which Japan will host. And it will be hosted in Prime Minister Kishida's home district of Hiroshima. Prime Minister uh, Kishida has long been an advocate of ridding the world of nuclear weapons, this is very popular in his district, obviously, for the historical reasons. Hiroshima and Nagasaki being the only country, uh, cities in the world ever to have suffered the, the horrible consequences of, of a nuclear bomb. And so I don't think that particularly under Prime Minister Kishida, and because the Japanese public would never support nuclear weapons, uh, there are some military people in Japan who would like to see Japan at least consider the possibility. But it, it, frankly, it makes very little sense for Japan to acquire nuclear weapons. It has the U.S.'s nuclear umbrella, which means if it's attacked by nuclear weapons, the U.S. will respond in kind to that country. And as long as Japan can trust that guarantee, there's no reason for it to have nuclear weapons. And the same is true of South Korea, by the way. Um, and so 
and also Japan's ter- look at a map. Uh, I think many people who advocate Japan getting nuclear weapons, just look at a map. Uh, China has, what, a thousand cities of over a million people or something like that. Um, and Japan is just a small, narrow archipelago of islands. It has no real deterrent capability with nuclear weapons. Um, most of its industry and population is concentrated upon the Pacific coast. And it would be very easy for an adversary, God forbid, to wipe out all of Japan's military capability and much of the uh, population uh, with nuclear weapons. So Japan, in response, would not have much uh, deterrent capability against, for example, China. So I don't think Japan getting nuclear weapons is likely politically or that it makes any rational sense, frankly. Well, Alice Krauss, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Glad to be here as always. And again, I've been speaking with Alice Krauss, who's a professor emeritus of Japanese politics and policymaking at the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. He is a leading expert on Japanese politics and U.S.-Japan relations, and his books include The Rise and Fall of Japan's LDP, Political Party Organizations as Institutions, Beyond Bilateralism, U.S.-Japan Relations in the New Asia-Pacific, and Reluctant Warriors, Germany-Japan and Their U.S. Alliance Dilemma. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes on